This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Monica Ducks, welcome to Better Reading. Thanks, Cheryl. So Monica is coming to us via Zoom from Melbourne. She's a writer and a columnist for The Age and was also a founding board member of the Stella Prize and the Feminist Writers Festival. Her previous books, The Great Feminist Denial and Things I Didn't Expect When I Was Expecting, so they're two separate books right there, yeah. dealt with feminism and motherhood. Her latest book, Lapsed, is a humorous investigation of how she lost touch with Catholicism. I was a bit cynical about how funny this book could be because it's such a serious mm. topic, but it is funny. Yeah, and I wanted it to be funny, and but it was really hard as a starting point, I think because so much about Catholicism is just funny, like it sort of writes itself, and I didn't want to just drag out all these hackneyed boomtish moments. So, yeah, so that was a struggle. But I, I wanted to write a book that was funny because the topic's very serious, of course, but it was sort of my entry point into being able to say, you know, I had this sense when I wrote the book that there's there's a lot of darkness about growing up Catholic, but there's also a lot of light. And for me, a lot of that light was was the sort of absurdity of it. Then there is a lot of absurdity about Catholicism and Catholic ritual and, you know, saints that never rot, like incorrupted saints and relics. I mean, there was, I, mean, I came across the foreskin of Jesus, um, you know, in its various manifestations across Europe. I thought, that's just funny. And so, yeah, so I, I didn't want the book. It was, it's a serious topic and it deals with a lot of serious issues in lots of different ways. But I really wanted to write a book that was fun and sort of a rollicking read because I think that is part of what it is to be a Catholic as well and to, mm. to sort of look around and go, what's that all that about? Yeah. Mm. Well, I mean, you grew up Catholic. I grew up Catholic. Um, I went to Catholic primary school and Catholic high school. My parents are Maronites, actually, because they immigrated from Lebanon. I think it was around the 50s. But, of course, we went to Catholic schools and then became mm. Catholic. Uh, but very, very early on, we I started to question it. Like, you know, I think it was maybe late primary or something I just like thinking this is this seems to me like a whole lot of rubbish you know yeah um yeah. and my mother you know my mother to this day still goes to mass every single day mm -hmm. yeah um, and we can talk about that because I think it is a great comfort and community to a lot of people mm -hmm. but at 16 she gave me the option do you still want to do this or don't you? I said, oh, I haven't believed in any of it for a very long time. And I thought she was very graceful about that for such yeah. a devout Catholic. Was she uh, upset? Was she upset? Uh, she doesn't like it when I criticise it. She To this yeah. day, she doesn't like it. You know, she'll say to me, you know, God willing. And I say, oh, you know what? It's not going to happen. Just how many times, <laughs> how many times do you Catholics need to be let down? I mean, I, oh, I, I, yeah. 
I mean, great. They, they, it never ends. And that's a funny thing. And this was something I kept coming up against in the book was I, I felt quite oppressed in a way by Catholic extended family who will still talk to me as if I'm somehow a bit naughty and I'm going to come back. It's like you're always stuck in this perpetual Catholic childhood and that one day you will you'll realise and you're like a lost lamb. But then, you know, and I don't know if you've thought about this, Cheryl, but I sometimes imagine on my deathbed, who knows, I may ask for the last rites. Like, you know, this is that thing that it's still in me in some way and would I end up sort of throwing it into the mix, you know, in that last hour You know, of it's my life. so funny you should say that because I, I feel as though that's not going to happen to me. But it's really interesting because I ran into some friends of mine that I hadn't seen for years that are part of the, the children of Mum's Lebanese community and beautiful, you know, women, and they told me that they were listening to my podcast, which was just so lovely, you know, to know. And, you know, they're two sisters and they share headphones on a train and they listen to my podcast. And, you know, it's a really heartening story, right? But one of them said to me, I can't believe, because I'd been talking about religion, obviously, that you're an atheist, because she said, what's going to happen at your funeral? Yeah. And yeah, I said, yeah. well, funerals are for the living. Yeah. I really, you, won't, you won't know about it. <laughs> I won't know. And really whatever gives great comfort to whoever, whoever's organising the funeral because that's what funerals are about, right? Yeah, and but that attitude, it's really interesting because I came across this a lot in the book and the more I dug and dug on the whole idea of what it is to believe in religion, what it is to grow up with belief and then lose it, was this sense that, you know, Half a century ago, most of the focus on not believing, on atheism, on agnosticism, was as if it was a lack and as if yes. people like yes. us, yeah, as if we're just sort of missing something and it's a little bit sad. And there was a lot of patronising academic research. It was quite funny. It would talk about adolescents who leave religion as somehow you know, something like maybe they they were more likely to be criminals, for instance. But that's changed a lot and I think that's a really a really big cultural movement and moment in terms of seeing people like us who don't have belief in a, you know, in a, in a God as actually still having lots of beliefs and still having a very rich ethical framework and still having, you know, as, as many, as many um, thoughts and questionings and all of that about who we are. I would argue, I would argue, sorry to interrupt there, Monica, but I would argue a lot of people who have all the traits of Christianity are probably Mm. atheists, you know, because they don't get involved in the anger and the vitriol that comes with religion, that can come with it, because there are so many bloody rules. Yeah, and there's a lot of, I mean, the research is really interesting about actual people who don't believe, like in America, there's a lot of people who actually are atheists who won't say that in a survey. They're no. much more likely. And I think, I mean, this is what I wanted the book to be about. I, I, for lapsed Catholics, for ex-Catholics, for angry former Catholics, you know, whatever we call ourselves, I thought we do think a lot about it. We do. It is sort of with us. And I really wanted to, to get people to follow me on this journey by the end of it to say, well, let's think about then what do we do with that and where do you place that? Because it's no longer a sense that, not believing is a lack. I think it is now about we are embracing something new and something that can be quite positive. And whether your funeral, Cheryl, ends up being <laughs> no, godless is is sort of important too. I mean, that says something as well. And yeah. I don't say this very much, but here I am putting it out there. Sometimes I find, and, and you can correct me here, sometimes I find reconciling religion with intelligence. Like I just think seriously, 
Do yeah, you and believe yeah. that. Look, and I, you know, I, I, I wrote the book thinking I, I wanted to be respectful to belief because yeah. I think we all Absolutely. individually, yeah, we're all seeking meaning, and I, I really do respect that, and I, I feel, but. There is some research, Cheryl, that actually links intelligence to atheism. And, you know, there's there's studies that come up where people examine, you know, well, do non are, are non-believers more intelligent? And some people would say perhaps they are, but you know, that's that's throwing a bit of a bomb into into the world, isn't it? Because mm. yeah, you talk about religion, politics, mm. uh, all of that. So so I, there's six kids in my family. So my parents, my dad has passed away. Um, my mother still goes to mass every day. And of the six of us, I'm the only atheist. The others are kind wow. of call themselves Catholic, but, you know, whether they're going to mass or not, you know, I don't know, I don't question it, but they will yeah. pull me up on things. And what I've seen in my mother's generation, and I think you'll find you've probably seen the same thing, there is community there is yeah. a sense of belonging for a woman that brought her children into a country, you know, to a country that she didn't have any money, didn't know the language, you know, all of that. They found community in Paris, yeah. you know, yeah. and, and I think that that has a huge impact, you know. And it does keep you connected. I think that's why it was interesting. I had a conversation last week with a fellow who's a Sikh. And he was talking about, he'd heard me on the radio talking about the book and he said it really resonated for him as a Sikh because he doesn't believe in God, but he still practices as a Sikh. And it was the same thing he said when he came to Australia, it was community. It was community and it continues to be his community and it brings him comfort and it brings him, you know, all these other positive things. I think there's a negative flip side to that too, though, because, well, I mean, I think of my own mother and how... For her, so my brother came out in his late teens, early, I think, yeah, around then, and she stopped going to Mass. So she still believes in Our Lady, which isn't that uncommon, I've found that. So she she hasn't really, Jesus doesn't really figure much, but she's still got this image of all those devotionals from her youth are really important to her, particularly since my father died. But she stopped going to Mass around the time my brother came out, and a lot of it had to do with this homophobia that she was witnessing in her Catholic community and she would go to mass and the priest would sermonize about this and you know churches Catholic churches they are it has a lot to do with the priests that's there but there was a lot of negative things that she was picking up that made her feel she she couldn't be part of that community anymore and I think but at the same time you know I have seen other relatives where it's provided them with tremendous comfort and community and a sense of purpose but I think it can be quite fraught. And I think particularly when for younger generations who weren't brought up in that sort of total Catholic world, that it actually does become a bit more fraught. And I think it does require us to think a little you know bit more why? about that relationship. You know why? Because it's conditional. Mm. You can only be my friend if you think this, this, this and that. That is, yeah. you know, it's conditional, you know, whereas I think young people are moving more towards unconditional, unconditional friendships, unconditional lives, you know, and that's what I found with it. It's very tit for tat. But also, too, in light of what happened in the US with the, the Trump administration and that, you know, rise of fundamentalist mm. right wing, I don't know what, I mean, call it brainwashing. I feel I did say this at a dinner with a few Catholics. Like, what is the difference between cult yeah. Catholicism and brainwashing? Yeah, I mean, because it's so hierarchical. And that was, you know, I said, I didn't know, you would have been the same, you're probably still the same, Cheryl. Like, most Catholics, we know so much about the ritual. I mean, if I started 
saying a few prayers here, having not stepped into it, you know, done a Catholic mass for a long time, I, I remember it all. You know, I remember all the hymns. You remember the prayers. You remember so much of it, and it doesn't take much to trigger it. But that actual sense of, well, what is the church about is something we don't know a lot about. And, you know, I, when I was writing Lapsed, I kept trying to ask those, answer those questions for myself, like, well, why are Catholics so focused on sex as being something that's quite dangerous? You know, all those questions. And I think that they're all obsessed with sex, most yeah. religions. And all those, you know, um, whatever you call them, those uh, cults, it's always there's, it's centered What you do with your sex. body. That's right. Yeah, and desire. And so there's yeah. all, but I think, I mean, Catholicism is really hierarchical. And we've seen the really horrible after effects of that in terms of institutional abuse. And and so that sense of often Catholics participate, but I they often don't know why they're participating or what what, what lies underneath that. And I think it's it's fascinating when you do start asking those questions about sex, about guilt, about confession, you know, about you know, eating Jesus each week. <laughs> I want to talk about confession, I, and I don't know the answer to this. This was just an observation. My uncle very, very sadly died recently and, and way too early. And anyway, the Maronites have a 40-day mass after the funeral. Wow. Um, so I attended the 40-day mass. And what I didn't realise was that it's not just a mass for him. It's it's the regular Saturday or Sunday mass, um, but yes. it's in his name or whatever they called it. Anyway, so I was yeah. sitting in one of the pews and I saw over to my right this long queue of young men. Now, mm. I'm I'm going to say from 20 and probably the eldest was 30. And I'm thinking, what? why are they here at this church? What are they queuing for? And then I noticed it was the confessional. Ah, oh, they were there to, to cleanse themselves of their sins. And yeah. do you know there was not one female on that queue that day? Wow. The age group just blew me away. These were yeah. young men just queuing for the confessional. Yeah. And I just thought, oh, gosh, I don't know whether to be frightened of this or whether to think that this is a good thing. I just don't know. Well, yeah, I mean, and that's a funny one because that's so Catholic. Confession is so Catholic. And I, I'm i a big confessor. Like I can't, I can keep my own secrets, but I, I but, you know, actually I can't, I can't keep my own secrets. I can keep everyone else's secrets. I, I have to say that so that all my friends will yes, <laughs> get to stay with Monica. But I, I will confess everything. And I think for me, that's a lot about growing up Catholic where, you know, the at the age of seven, we, you know, my peers and I, we presented ourselves to a priest where we had to tell him things that we'd done wrong. And it's really hard to imagine. I mean, seven-year-olds, if you believe in sin, they're not sinful. Like, they're, they're innocent. And I now look like, so I, I haven't baptised my children, which probably is a spoiler on the book because my daughter wanted to be baptised. But I, I look at my daughter and I think at the age of seven, the idea that I would put her in a room with a a man, possibly an elderly man, who oh, I don't danger, know much, danger, <laughs> yeah, and get her to say to him, "I have been bad." And yeah, it was funny when I was researching the book. So many former Catholics were like, "Oh, I made up my first confession because I did too." Like we all of made course. up because yeah, I like what do you say? And you know, and even adults. There was one guy who had told me it was quite funny that his son was going to a Catholic school. He no longer believed, but they had this kind of uh, an evening where they were all confessing at, at the mass. And he thought just to show support for his son, he would go up. And he said, and I got up there and I didn't know what to say. And he said, so I just said, 
I've been watching pornography, you know, which <laughs> he actually qualified and said, I wasn't, I hadn't been. I was like, whatever. But, you know, it's like, yeah. it, it's this very strange grooming. And I think that goes to the heart of a lot of what it is to be a Catholic, though, that we we do, we are encouraged to search our souls and to see ourselves as unworthy. And, and going back to those young men you see there, I can see why it's really attractive to young people. I mean, it's actually in the numbers, I mean, there's so few, far less Catholics today than there ever has been. And, you know, the rates of deconversion from the Catholic Church are, you know, accelerating. So, you know, they are, that is a small sample. But I know when I was young, I was the perfect Catholic until my teens. I really believed I wanted to be a nun. I wanted all those things. And that, I think there is an appeal in that because like Trump, you know, in a way, it's this heightened sense of, you, you want to have something big to believe in and something extreme, particularly when you're young, and it's very attractive. And I think when it comes to confession, it, it, it's a ritual that has a lot of appeal in a way because it's like you're offloading. I mean, it was the original sort of therapy for a lot of people. Before we had psychology and psychiatry, you would go into the confessional and say, you know, these are these are my dark thoughts. These are the bad things. Yeah, it's very fraught. But I think when you do that as a child, it really does sort of it gets into under your skin. It's a, it's a way of understanding what it is to be bad, what it is to be good, and and how you fix that. Yeah. Mm. Do you know? I think you and I must be different because when I walked away from it, I had no guilt. I I kept thinking, I'm just going to live my life to what I think is right or wrong. I, oh. I don't believe this. And it wasn't until it got worse for me, like I was getting angrier, is when I was finding out how terrible some aspects of the Catholic Church are. And when I look at that now and I see all the atrocities, I mean, I was reading Gabriel Byrne's memoir recently, you know, who grew up Catholic, and can you imagine? Scathing of the nuns, you know, scathing yeah. of all those nuns that, you know, I mean, yeah. the sins they, the, how many babies they killed, you know, how mm. many women that they promised to look after, young girls and didn't, and yeah. go into the sexual assaults. And then you go, even, you know, recently the Pope said, uh, uh, I think it was a New York Times journalist asked him about the rape of nuns, and he said, yes, yes, I'll get onto that. Not yeah, like, oh, no, yeah. it's not happening. It's just yeah. something we need to address. Meanwhile, they're yeah. still being raped, right? Yeah. And you look, you look. if that was any other organisation, it would have been shut down. Yeah. And yet yeah. people still believe and still follow an organisation with a despicable track record. I mean, and that is the big thing, and that's for me with LAPS, writing that book, that was the big question. I felt that when I was researching the book and writing the book and, and you know, and it was like 50 years ago, I think I could have written a book, a similar book, about what it is to leave religion, what it is to grow up religious and walk away and what that does to you, particularly as a Catholic. I, I, that was still a topic. But the thing that has blown it all out of the water since the, you know, since the 90s for all of us, Catholics and former Catholics, is how do you deal with that, the revelations of abuse. And, you know, originally I think when they first started coming out, it was very easy for people to excuse them as isolated incidences. And you still see that happening. A lot of denial, I think, about Catholic church abuse is about, oh, well, there was just, it was a few bad men or it was a few bad nuns, but there were the good nuns and the good good priests. And that's simply not true. And I mean, there was this um, fabulous essay I wrote when I, I read when I was writing the book by Robert Orsi who is a church historian in the US, beautiful writer, and he'd written a lot about the Catholic Church and had a real fondness for a lot of his parents' generation of devotionals in, in New York. And he wrote about, he started researching abuse 
And he's been doing that for the last few years. And he said, you know, all he came up with in the end was his sense of utter disgust. And he said that there is this impulse we have in us, and I think we still all carry it in some form, particularly when you're brought up religious, to, to sort of climb, he, he said something like to scramble up to the good, the light of good religion, to say, I remember a good nun, but of course there were the bad nuns. Or I remember a good priest, but of course there were the bad priests. And he says, you can't see it that way, that the whole, the whole institution is so fraught and so so corrupt and and has has so deeply failed to deal with the abuse that you know we have to see it as a whole and and so for me writing the book I just kept thinking this was the big elephant in the room and it is it is for all Catholics it's for all of us and we can't pretend it's not there and trying to figure out what do we do with that fury then when we've got it because I think if you're brought up Catholic, particularly, you know that you you start to realise that you're connected to these communities of people. You probably do have a relative who was abused. I mean, I, I know it was because I was asking people questions when I was researching the book, but it was really quite depressing to me to, to have all these conversations with people. And often they would say something like, you know, I think my brother might have been being abused, but I never quite worked that out. Or I think I have a cousin. The, the school my brothers went to had an abuser there and other things that went on. So we we are all sort of connected to that. And then, yeah, it's like, but what do you do about that? Because I know that there's a lot of anger and and we keep getting angry, but then there has to be some resolution then. Like you talk about your mother and her relationship to the church and and that, it's going back to what I started saying about that, the light. There's a lot of light in that. And I know there was a lot of light in my childhood. But then that darkness is pretty damn dark. And and they, they're bumping up against each other all the time for, I think, people who were brought up Catholic. And I wanted to solve that, I think, in a way, work out, how, well, how do you resolve that for yourself so that you can move forward from it? Because, you know, that's not going away. And and I think the, the revelations about abuse are just going to keep growing. Um, and it's interesting what you're saying about nuns, that, you know, Christine Keneally, an Australian writer, not the ex-premier, she did this fantastic uh, project for BuzzFeed where she researched an orphanage in Burlington, Vermont, where the nuns who were running the orphanage abused children, possibly murdered children. You know, it was just, you read that and you go, oh, like, where do you go from that? And I think Mm if, yeah, if we grow up among, these are the people we grew up with and these are the beliefs we grew up with. And, yeah, and so the abuse thing is, is the big elephant. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com 
slash host. If that was a new religion, like, you know, one of those up-and-coming cults or religion, because they're mm-hmm. the same thing, right, and we discovered that, you know, there's people out in the back of Burke somewhere running this this cult or this religion and murders were involved, the police would rampage that place yeah. and people would be arrested. But Catholics yeah. get away with it time after time after time. And, you know, that's the thing. It's not new. It's like thousands of years. And this is, and this was, I mean, I was so fascinated in when I was writing the book, researching the history of the church, because I mean, the history of Christianity is pretty much the history of Western civilization in a lot of ways. And it's, it goes far beyond just when Jesus was born. It goes, you know, it's, it's thousands of years before Jesus was born. It's this whole weight of history and knowledge and understanding of ourselves that we carry with us. And so I think when it comes to something like church abuse, you know, we're not just dealing with this new flash in the pan. And it's, it's, so that makes it even harder. And, but it's interesting, you know, with abuse that looking at the history of the church's response to abuse, it started getting very bad in the mid 19th century. Before then, there was a bit of a different stance taken, not that the church was in any way <laughs> good, you know, but it, 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 there are historical reasons why the abuse today is so bad within the Catholic institution and why it has been fueled and why they're so reluctant to really um, make any significant redress to deal with it. And it, it's sort of fascinating, but I think once you know all of that and you understand it a bit better, it does then make it easier to judge it rather than just feel anger and, and conflict and, you know, grief. Leaving a religion, the best religion in the world, if you stop believing, if you're, if the church you grew up with, you know, was lovely... <laughs> <laughs> so lovely, but it believed in God, and then you were twelve, and you thought, "I don't believe in God anymore." You would experience a form of grief about that because it's your community and your culture and your whole sense of understanding yourself. Once again, when you throw in, you know, what the church actually did—these crimes they committed—that just changes it all. It makes it so much harder, I think, to to unpack that grief and to move beyond it because it's very much about today and what we're living with—that collective trauma. Mm. Monica, recently I recorded a podcast with Louise Milligan. Yep, fantastic. Um, uh, yeah, remarkable yeah. book. Um, and, you know, I, I went hard, as you can imagine. And, you know, I got so many letters, mm. emails from people, not just in Australia, around the world, saying, you know, finally somebody is hearing us, somebody is yeah. talking about it. But even yeah. then, he ended up getting away with it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Milligan's work is uh, amazing, and I think it was it gave it gave people a voice that hadn't been there. And and you know, it's interesting that like I think back when I was in my late teens, I started hearing murmurings about church abuse, mm-hmm. people I knew who had been abused. But even back then, it was like they were isolated, mm-hmm. and we weren't. And I think the more that it's talked about, and the more that it's actually acknowledged the easier it gets for people to to own their story and to realise it wasn't just them and it, it was this whole institution. And that's very hard. And, and I think that, that that sense of it's not just about people who were abused and survivors of abuse within the church. It's about everyone who knew those people and loved those people. Like it's, it, it's, a, it is, it's a trauma. Mm. And I think it is a trauma that has permeated all of us. And I think for lapsed Catholics, it's very much a part of our story now, but it's a very, it's a kind of a new part because we've only started talking about it in the last couple of decades. So I, I find that quite fascinating. And this is, I mean, yes, my book's very funny, but it does sort of come to this point of saying, 
but there's this dark story and I spent years, I've spent years just being angry and I wanted to know what to do with it because, yeah, it, it, it affects us all. It, mm. Some people will say, oh, it's, it doesn't affect me or, and there's a lot of denial, you know, oh, I don't believe that happened. I mean, there was an abuser at my brother's school and some of the mothers, he, he was such a charmer. He was one of those charming, as they always are. Um, and he, there were some of the mothers who had been on the tuck shop with him who later said, I don't believe he did any of that. You know, that level of denial is still there. But, yeah, I, I think it, it impacts on all of us. And, and yet we let this organisation educate our kids, <laughs> raise yeah. our kids, you know. Yeah. Like look at all yeah. the prim- uh, Catholic primary schools and the Catholic high schools. I want to talk about feminism as well. You have an organisation that's largely run by women, the nuns, mm. the teachers, you know, when we're looking at the education side of Catholicism, yet they get no recognition whatsoever. Do you know yeah. in Catholic schools, and this is so in New South Wales and I don't know whether it's the same as Victoria, the principal of the Catholic primary school has to report to the parish priest. Yes, and I think that's a really important, I mean, there's a lot. There's a bit of noise being made about that and has been in the last few years, but I think that's, I mean, that was one of my interests in it with this book was, so my daughter decided she wanted to be Catholic and she wanted to go to a Catholic school, a Catholic high school. She's not in high school yet. And I struggled with that because I thought, well, what if that church, that school is the best school for her? And what fascinates me, though, is how many people like me, like lapsed Catholics, former Catholics, ex-Catholics, people who don't believe in God, still will baptize their kids, send them to Catholic schools. And I think with the Catholic schools, it's an interesting one because you can actually have a very good Catholic school. Absolutely. And Absolutely. Yeah, and I, I have friends who they're married, two women, they're married, they have a kid. Mm. And one of my friends, she's a teacher, she teaches at a Catholic school. And she was saying to me, look, they're fabulous. They're fabulous. But the big difference is if they decided not to be fabulous, if the bishop wanted to intervene, they could. Mm. And and that's sort of still 2021, that's what we're looking at. And, and so I think that sense of, yeah, and, and there's another thing I think about religious schooling and Catholic schooling, if I ha- I've had people say to me over the years, well, they teach good values and they teach good things about Jesus. You know? And it's like my kids go to a state primary school, they teach good values. They Their teach great values, values, of course. Yeah, but yeah. we haven't got this kind of complication of God. But, yeah, schools, I mean, there's a tax-free status. It's a, it's a really big, oh, it's a big area because mm-hmm. also when you look at these schools as well where abuse took place and how they've dealt with that, and it is, I mean, and I think that kind of goes to the heart of a lot of what the Catholic Church is. So you have ordinary Catholics and we have our beliefs, you know, we used to have, I used to have my beliefs, but, you know, there's, there's a sense of what Catholics as people are, but then you have the institution. And that was the thing I kept coming back to in the book was I kept realising the institution has a tremendous amount of power. And I think a lot of practising Catholics or ambivalent Catholics or people who just participate even if they don't believe in it, Catholics, don't realise the extent of that power and how it can actually cause quite a bit of damage. And it might not affect us in our day-to-day lives, but there's many instances around the world where it has. So so you talk about the fact that people are, you know, the numbers are dropping quite significantly. What do you think yeah. the future is? Um, look, I think in terms of Western society, uh, I mean, there's some parts in the world, places like Poland, and that's a very different situation there. Um, They've got a very repressive government and and it's a very Catholic government. But in the Western society, I mean, 
People are moving away from organised religion and have been for decades, not just Catholics. Catholic deconversion is is one of the really big leaders. <laughs> you know, we are we are leading the charge. And the biggest religious belief or you know belief on the census in 2016 was actually non-belief, the quick the biggest growing uh, belief. So I think people will continue to participate in Catholicism. And if you look at the statistics in the 50s, it was something like three quarters of people baptized Catholic went to mass every week. In 2010, it was about 10%. So it's it's dropped. I mean, the pews are empty. Mm. And I think the more people talk about it and examine their, their relationship to the church, the more that, that will plummet. So I don't think, yes, I think that, I think institutional religion itself, I don't think religion's ever going to go away and, you know, nor should it. I'm not the one here to wipe it all off the planet, but Catholicism is is in decline and will continue. But at the same time, the, the Vatican is very powerful and it's powerful in a lot of different ways. So you know. And they've got the system and the process set up to really, you know, brainwash people from a very early age. Well, and that's mm. what Catholic schools were, were. The original mission of the Catholic school in the in the early 20th century was to educate people, people whose parents might not have, you know, gone to mass, but to keep children, to make them into Catholics. And it sort of worked. Like, I mean, I don't believe in God and I still feel Catholic. <laughs> so, you know, it works. <laughs> you know, sometimes I have a problem with even saying I'm a lapsed Catholic or whatever, because I don't want Catholic in it. I just want to be yeah. an atheist. I, I don't want to acknowledge yeah. it. I, why should I? I? You know, that's what I felt like. So, I, you know, I wanted to be a nun. I gave up God as a teenager. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I really wanted to be. I would have been wow. a great nun. Whole um, I was completely, I was the kid <laughs> that I'm sure a lot of kids found so annoying, but I was so devout Gave up on God spectacularly in my, you know, teens. And a lot of it had to do with sex for me because it was like, oh, like I was told by a nun in year nine, my my science teacher, that um, if I showered and started enjoying it, I should stop because that's sinful. I mean, this was mm. the sort of thing I was being told. Mm. So when I did shower and start to enjoy it, I thought, oh, this doesn't quite make sense for me. But so I, I left spectacularly, but I, I think I thought at the time, I was naive enough to think that it was just about belief in God. Like, oh, it's a, it's a yes or a no answer. Like, oh, I don't believe in God, so I'm not Catholic anymore. But it just stayed with me. And it, it did, I mean, and I, I have this huge, I feel like my community today is, there's one part of my community that is actually former Catholics. Like people like me who who had a similar upbringing, we don't believe in any of it anymore. We share this kind of anger, we share this history, but we all sort of know each other in a certain way. And Catholics more than any other Christian denomination find it very hard to describe themselves. So you you ask a Methodist, oh, you know, a child who's brought up as a Methodist no longer believes, they're more likely to say, I'm an ex-Methodist. Catholics do tend to get into these knots of saying, and I've heard so many different ways of explaining it, you know. I, I think the best one recently was, well, I've heard recovering Catholic, but <laughs> un, unreconstructed Catholic. You know, there's all these sort of different ways that we grapple with with that terminology, and I think that really points to something significant in that all the, you know, the belief can go, but the culture, the family, the programming, the sense of who we are, the sense of our childhood, that seems to stay. And I, I that was what I wanted to do when I wrote LAPS was work out, well, what do I do with that? Can I get rid of it? 
can I can I completely uncatholic myself? Is there some process that will take it all off and and I will be cleansed? Do you need, <laughs> do you need to be baptized uncatholic to be uncatholic? Uh, can I be unbaptized? And, and you know, see, this is some, Catholic, <laughs> some former Catholics talk about that. Can I get unbaptized? And it's like, and I, in the end, though, I realized, no, I can't. It's never going to leave me. It's no. never going to leave me. But like, it, it is. It's like an ethnicity, and this is how it was often described to me by academics: was it, it is like an ethnicity that stays. What I can do, though, is make a choice about what I do with that. And for me, it was don't baptise my kids, don't participate, talk to them about my past because it sort of is about their family and about who I am. And and in years to come, they can say to their friends, oh, my God, my mother, (laughs) she was just such a crazy mixed up ex-Catholic, but yeah. (laughs) Monica, we could talk for hours. I mean, it's such a big subject. Congratulations on the book. It's called Last. Thank you, Cheryl. Thank you for your time. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audio books are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere. Or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of ebooks and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.